A Look at Paradise is the title of message number 13 of Dr. Joel Hunter's series, The Church and the World of the Future, a study of the book of Revelation. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's scripture text is Revelation chapter 22. And now, let's begin. Thank you, Sherry. Let me just say a word to introduce uh, this <clears throat> presentation of a section of George Friedrich Hendel's Messiah. Uh, this is just a section. It's going to be about a half an hour uh, uh, part of it. The entire Messiah lasts over three hours, and we thought maybe just a section would do. Um, <clears throat> there are a few things you need to know uh, going into this. First of all, this is uh, provided for our worship. Um, and therefore, even though there will be times in this that you feel like applauding, Please don't until the end, the uh, Hallelujah Chorus, uh, because the choir really wants to present this to you as a, kind of a, a seamless uh, presentation. Secondly, um, the words that you will be hearing are Scripture. Handel's Messiah was simply Scripture put to music. And the music that uh, the arrangement tonight is the classical uh, arrangement. Those of you who are not... Uh, um, um, used to classical music will find this, uh, uh, I think, a refreshing, refreshing difference. The third thing I'd like you to concentrate on when you hear this is this question. Most of these selections of um, scriptures are about God's fulfilling his own prophecy, that is, bringing to pass his plan for the redemption of mankind. Now, this fits so well with what we've been teaching in Revelation and, and what I will finish teaching you tonight. I'd like to ask yourself this question. When God makes a prophecy, how can he be sure that it will come to pass? How can he be sure that it will come to pass? As you listen to these prophecies tonight and God's fulfillment of them, how did he know it was going to happen? Pray with me. Father, we do thank you for this gift that you gave to uh, the composer Handel for our edification, our biblical edification. And Father, we would ask that during this time of song that you would so anoint uh, this choir, so fill them with your spirit that the, the presentation itself uh, does not... Um, focus our concentration. Rather, we can see through the choir to you. And we are drawn by the power of your scripture, and it is planted into our hearts where it may grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God.
the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom ye delight. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and he shall purify the sons of Levi. And they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Oh, 
shall no more go down, neither shall the moon withdraw itself, for the Lord shall be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended.
were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is the righteous Savior, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd, and he shall gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young.
the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Their sound has gone out into all the lands and their words unto the ends of the world. Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever.
Thank you, choir. Thank you, God, for giving those words and inspiring your servant Handel to that music. I think probably the most appropriate response to that is just a moment of prayer. So would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your great and powerful word. And in return, in return for its power and its promise, in return for its provision, Father, we want to pray a prayer of offertory. We want to offer ourselves in the building of your kingdom. Tonight, many of us will offer money. We ask you to take that and multiply it, to build it uh, into things eternal. Many of us will offer our emotions and our intellect and our behavior. Father, in all of these things, we pray that you will build in them eternal things, things of you, and build them into eternal things that others can see. Now, Father, please come with your Holy Spirit. Our understanding of your written word, we pray this in Jesus' name. have your uh, scriptures, would you turn to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, and this is, uh, this is the last edition of our uh, study of Revelation. I'm going to miss this book. <clears throat> I have loved preaching through this. I want to remind you of the kind of preaching that we're doing through it, and that is, this is not a strict exegesis or strict exposition. What we have done is giving you enough background that you can read the word for yourself and have a context for understanding. So therefore, we've just been uh, kind of the background for your personal um, delving into the scriptures. Now, I want you to remember from where we came three months ago. I want you to remember that our understanding of Revelation is not that it is strictly a prediction for the future. It is a recognition of what God has done in patterns throughout time. And that God has um, um, been involved in history in such a way that these patterns have been repeated so that our prediction of the future comes from our understanding of the present and our observance of the past. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, God gives us this understanding of the future. Now, in chapter 22, there is a look at paradise. There is a picture of what life will be in paradise. That is, what life will be after the believer dies. But my question to you is, do we have to wait until we get there to experience that life, at least partially. And how does God make sure that those patterns he has put in history really come true? We just heard a uh, a great uh, um, um, oratorio of prophecy, fulfilled prophecy. Let me bring that question back to you. How is it that when something was prophesied in Scripture, it always came true? To the letter. The answer to that question is this. Because God himself was in history making it come true. Now here's what I want you to understand. History doesn't just happen from the present forward. History also happens from the future backwards. You see, God has a designed end for us. And it is a certain end for us. And because God knows what he wants in the end, he comes into history and pulls us toward that end. And that makes a major difference. How we understand God making his history happen makes a major difference in how we live our lives. We don't have to live it in the kind of ignorance we presumed that we did. We don't have to say, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. We don't know what our lives are going to be like. 
We certainly do. It's spelled out in the book. We read, and we can understand. When you read in chapter 22 what life will be like someday for the believer, when you read that there will be provision for the believer because of this tree of life, that there will be healing for the believer, that there shall no longer be any curse. You're not going to wake up every morning looking at Murphy's Law in the face. Everything goes wrong, and that's your main preoccupation. What am I going to have to fix today? When we, when we see that someday we will live just to serve him, and we will have his nature imprinted on us, we will think like Christ. We will have the mind of Christ. His name is written on our forehead, it says. When we understand that we will not only serve him, we will reign with him. We begin to wonder what a life like that would be like. Well, let me ask you, why not start to live it now? You see, God is in history, coming from the future, pulling us toward that kind of life right now. And we don't have to remain in absolute ignorance. Did you ever have the experience of wondering about the future, wishing you could predict, at least in general terms, what the future would be. Let me ask you an even more common experience. Have you ever been through a usually horrible experience that surprised you? But the more you looked backwards, the more you said to yourself, man, I should have seen that coming all along. I mean, the, 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 the signs were there. How could I have missed that? I look back now, it's as plain as day. If I'd have just taken the time to see it. You ever had that experience? Well, I've told you before, I don't want you to blame yourself for missing those things that are obviously um, uh, going to manifest themselves in the future. Some of you, some of you say uh, you blame yourself for the breakup of relationships or for things you should have said, uh, you know, ways you could have... Don't do that. But by the same token, I don't want you to resign yourself to total ignorance about the future. Because the future, in general terms, especially for a believer, can be understood and can be lived into. One of the best books I've read recently, I love to read uh, uh, books on leadership and especially management. And one of the best secular books I've read uh, recently is uh, Competing for the Future, I think is the title of it. just finished it last week. Hamill and Prahalad are the authors. Uh, it was published by Harvard Business School. Um, it's, 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 a, it's about a book that says, essentially, that foresight is different than vision. He says, you know, vision is sometimes given to people who um, have this idea of what the future is going to be like, and then they gather people around them, and they, they go out and they make things happen. But... Foresight, the book says, is something that all of us can experience. It's something that all of us can do. As a matter of fact, one uh, person who was quoted in the book really sums up the book. His name was, uh, I think it's Elliot Kay. I'm not uh, sure about the first name. But he first worked for Xerox, and now he works for Apple. And he said, you know, looking back, the future was predictable. It's just that no one really took the time to think it through enough to predict it. Now, if that's true for a business sense, how much more true should it be for believers who have essentially the general outline of the future spelled out for them in the revelation of Christ? Spelled out for them in the prophecy of how things are going to be. How sure should we be of the future? How confident should we be to live our lives knowing what's going to take place? Some things, um, you just... You don't feel like you can do anything about it. You, you don't feel like you can adjust your lives. You just wait for them to happen. In this book, for example, they talk about some of the coming technology. And, and you know I love uh, to, to study uh, things of the future. And I'm fascinated with, this, uh, with these things. Some of these things I've mentioned to you before, the microbi- microbiotics, for example. Or in another book, that it was termed nanotechnology. The little organisms, robots that, uh, that are microscopic that will be able to be sent into your bloodstream to clean out your arteries in the future. 
Um, some of the computer developments are absolutely fascinating. They will have a simultaneous translator. That means that you can call somebody in Russia. They can't speak English, you can't speak Russian, but you will be able to communicate with them as they speak because the computer will put that language into your language immediately. Um, there are other things, uh, you know, the, the whole, we've talked before about the whole uh, digital uh, information highway that now, even now, is making its way into some of your homes, especially with the Time Warner experience in, um, experiment in Orlando. This interactive TV, uh, the future of possibly having uh, 200 channels, 500 channels. I mean, I don't know what's going to be on them, but uh, here comes the capability. Uh, some of the some of the interesting things for automobiles uh, that we read about now. Now, even now, they are beginning to um, put into cars uh, uh, the availability of visual maps to your destination. But in the future, they will not only have maps, but they will have um, um, indications of traffic congestion and be able to reroute you to avoid uh, the traffic congestion. They will also have, I love this, collision avoidance capabilities. Now, I really need this soon. <laughs> I've, I've run into people with my car, and I could use one of those deals on my car right now. But the fact is, i just got to wait. There's nothing I can much do about that. Contrast that with what God is saying in Scripture. Why does God write prophecy at all? Why does God reveal to us what our future is going to be? So that we can realign our lives with it right now. So that we don't have to wait until we die to experience at least some of this. Now let me put this in a little different venue to tell you what I'm talking about. A little bit more practical venue for some of you. Let me ask you this question. How do you raise your children? Most people raise their children by looking at the age of their child, looking at a normal range of behavior within that age, comparing those, that child with other kids and saying, well, it looks fairly normal. If they go out of the normal range, then you try to react to some symptomatic uh, problem. But most parents just say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do the best we can with what we know now and just hope that it turns out all right into the future because no one can know the future. I think you can know the future better than you believe you can. And I think there are two ways to raise your kids. One is that way I just talked about, which isn't bad, but it is from the present forward. The other is just what I mentioned to you a while ago, to raise your kids backwards. In other words, to understand what God wants them to be at 40 and 50 years old and to take that into consideration now. To be able to, to see what will not be acceptable at 40 years old and to begin to work on that at 5 years old. Now, I know this works because my wife did it in raising our sons. When our kids were growing up, they were boogerheads like everybody else. They were as ornery as they could be, and people would poo-poo their behavior. Oh, pfft. Boys will be boys, they'd say. You know, trying to excuse that. And my wife would stop them dead in their tracks and she'd say, No, boys will be men. And I will not have this kind of man. Now, what she was doing the whole time, and she was teaching them this the whole time, she was, a, she was visualizing what God wanted for their lives at 40 years old. And then she would say, You know, that won't do when you're 40. If, if you are married and you have a, a, a relationship with your wife, you can't just hold your breath when you get mad and stomp out of the room and not talk about it. That doesn't fit a good marriage. Now, I realize you're only 10 years old. But right now, we have to start putting the future into your life so that when you get there, you'll understand that the future has already been built and you have that capability in your marriage. She used to say to them, I know you get frustrated and you want to slug your brother. I know that. But you know what? When you're 40, 50 years old, you can't start slugging people when you're frustrated. 
You can't slug your wife. You can't slug your kids. You can't do violence to other people. So therefore, we're going to work on this right now. Now, of course, you don't expect perfection. Of course, you make allowances for uh, capabilities according to a certain maturity, of course. But from the very beginning, you begin to build into those kids the mentality of the future. What does God want me to be in the future? I can start living partially, at least, like that right now. And our kids are totally on track. I want to tell you, it works. Because nobody wants to grow up to be a jerk if they feel like they have another choice. Now, again... Some of these things, not, it, it isn't automatic, and you always kind of wait with bated breath to see how they're going to get these through these times of immaturity. But what you can see eventually is that it's not just the training of the parent. If you understand what that kid is to be on into the future and what God wants to make that kid, it is God who is establishing in that child's life those things. It's not just you, and it doesn't depend on them. Let me give you an example. We have a, uh, a 17-year-old who is a good wrestler. He also is very competitive by nature and very passionate. And therefore, in the past, those few times he has lost a wrestling match, he has struggled to act appropriately. I think that's about as well as I can put it. And we've tried to explain, you know, but there's, you know, there's just only so much a parent can explain that's really taken in. The rest of the time we prayed, God establish in his life the perspective he needs. The ability to be a witness for you, win or lose. Well, this weekend uh, was a big wrestling tournament, and we've seen progress. We've seen God do this thing, you know, over a period of time. But this was a big wrestling tournament this weekend. And pressure was on. People come from all over the state, you know, to this, to this tournament, top-notch. Well, Isaac went in there and pinned his first two guys. It was looking good. And then he got beat twice. Now, this was yesterday, and, and I had to come to church afterwards. And uh, Beck went home with, with the kids, and her mom's with us in, uh, for a little while, and and Josh's girlfriend was there. And, and uh, so Beck calls me up, just howling, you know, I mean, laughing. Um, I, said, I said, what's up? And he says the weird, she said the weirdest thing. She said, uh, Isaac came home, got uh, cleaned up, and went to the mall with his brothers. And I said, well, that's, that's good. Then she said, uh, he came home a little while later and sat down on the couch and pulled out a harmonica. And I said, this is her talking, Isaac, what are you doing with a harmonica? And he looked up and he said, you know, sometimes you, you just got to sing the blues. <laughs> And he goes into this shtick, you know. Well, I lost two matches, blah, 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 blah. And I'll probably lose more, blah, 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 blah. Because I'm a loser, baby, blah, 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 blah. Then he goes into the rest of his life. Well, I lost two women, blah, 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 blah. I'll probably lose more, blah, 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 blah. Well, I got this harmonica, blah, blah, blah. It came from China, blah, Because I'm a loser. You know, I just, just, and they were on the floor. It's absolutely on the floor. Well, now, some of you will take a look at that and see the need for an emergency self-esteem clinic. <laughs> Others of you will take a look at that and see, now, that's a pretty good way to handle disappointment. Let me tell you what I see when I look at it. I see what this kid's going to be in 30 years. I know what he's going to be in 30 years. Better alive, I know what he's going to be. I, I really do. I know what he's going to be doing. He's going to be reigning with Christ. He's going to be providing spiritual leadership. And I hope he's still on earth because that spiritual leadership on earth is going to be great. But I know what he's going to need for that spiritual leadership. 
I know that he will need the perspective that comes with humor. I know he's going to need the buoyancy to, to face the disappointments of life. And I know even more what he's going to need is accurate theology that says, God's accomplishment through me on earth does not depend on my performance from day to day. Does not depend on my winning or losing. Does not depend on my degree of capability for him. That's what he's going to need. And that's what God is beginning to establish in his life. You say, well, doesn't he get any credit for this? No. Nobody is a greater admirer than my, and of, of my kids than I am. I love them, respect them. I love to be around them. But quite frankly, this doesn't have to do with him. This has to do with God building the future in his life. That's what's happening right now. And that's what we see right now. So as we begin to understand what the future is. We can begin to understand what God's doing in our lives. Now, we're going to go into the future whether we understand it or not. The choice is, do you want to understand what God is building for the future? If you do, it's in the book. We're going to be talking about this, by the way, for, for the next few months. And if you are curious about this, come back. It's in the book. We'll teach you what God has said the future is going to be like. The advantage of understanding what God is building is you can see how what below the surface so to speak the, the world does not look to you like it looks to everybody else because you are beginning to understand what God is doing and why he's doing what he's doing let me give you an analogy not too many years ago a major um, nation was in a war with a, a small country this major nation had all of the capabilities, all of the technological capabilities that this small country did not have. But the small country was doing very well in the war because they had the uncanny ability to move the supplies that they needed to move to redistribute their resources wherever they needed to in order to meet the challenge of the war. Now, the major nation that had all of these capabilities, all these technological capabilities, couldn't figure out how they were doing it. Because every time they'd see a bridge, for example, over a river, they'd bomb it. They'd just wipe it out. But no matter how many bridges they wiped out, and the bridges weren't getting rebuilt, this country was able to transport what it needed to where it needed to. And they couldn't figure it out until years later they discovered what had happened. This small country had built bridges across rivers, but they had built them just below the waterline, two or three or four inches below the waterline, so that they could not be seen from above. And so therefore, the enemy, as it were, couldn't attack them, and they could continue to use those things and redistribute the resources wherever they were needed. Let me give you that analogy for your life. God is building bridges in your life. He is building bridges between people. He is building bridges for his church. But they are not evident unless you know where to look. And God is continuing to build the future that he's prophesied, that he has told us what it was going to be. But the difference between people is that some will know where the bridges are and some won't. God will continue to build his history God himself is involved in history, making it happen. You've got to choose whether or not you want to see what God is building. Now, let me tell you just a couple more things about this chapter that you may look for as you, as you uh, um, read this chapter, chapter yourself. I've so far talked about the believers. There is also a curious verse in this chapter about paradise that is about non-believers. And it's, it's just weird that it's stuck in there like this. You, you, you get this look at, at, at how life is going to be in the future. And you begin to see that, you know what, we could probably start living like that. What would life be, for example, 
if you knew you could count on provision from God. We pray for it every time we, uh, we uh, say the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And then we go out and worry about it. What would it be like if you walked in faith that God was going to provide you with whatever you needed to have? And if he didn't provide it, you didn't need it. What would it be like to live just in that one element? What would your life be like? How would it be different? How much, how much less time would you spend in anxiety and stress? Well, that's what we're talking about. Now, we see this picture of paradise, and then we get down to this kind of odd verse. Uh, verse 11 it is. It says, let the one who does wrong... Now, you expect the Bible to say, do right. Right? I mean, isn't that what the Bible says? Oh, you got to if you're doing wrong, do right. No. What it says here is, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And let the one who does, is filthy still be filthy. And then it says, let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Now, what is that all about? It's about this, that God is building the future in those people who are his. But there will always be people who just aren't going to go along with it. Just flat out, they will never go along with it. And what we will see in the future is a manifestation and a further evidence of both kinds of people. The boogerheads are going to get more boogerheaded. And the holy people are going to try harder to serve God. I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. Now, some of you say, that's weird. If this was so good, everybody would go for it. If people only knew what they had to do, they would do it. The matter is not spiritual, it's intellectual. The problem is ignorance. I want to challenge that thought for you today. I want to just, just, just go along with a little scenario with me. If we brought a half a dozen uh, one-and-a-half-year-olds in here, and I just held just above, and, and sent, sent them up to me one, one at a time, and I held above them a piece of candy, every one of them would have the same reaction. They'd want it. Now, what if I were to say to them, all you got to do is say, please. Some of them would go, Please. I mean, it'd be automatic. What's the problem? Oh, great. Got the answer. Thanks. You know? But there would be kids in there, and you know this. All you got to do is say please. And then they get down on the kick, and they bang their head against the floor. Anything. But to do it, like I said it, all you got to do is say please. You know what? Adults are no different. God says, I'm offering you salvation. All you got to do is say please. All you got to do is just do it my way. And, mo- and many of the populace go, great, thanks. That's all I was looking for. Please. But there are people who say, oh, no, you don't. I'm doing it my way. I'm going to deserve it. I'm going to earn my way. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm not doing it your way. I'm doing it my way. And they'll do everything they can to try to deserve to go to heaven. Listen to me. Pray that you don't get what you deserve. There is no one who deserves to live in perfection. There is no one. There is no one who can earn their own way. Why is it that people insist on doing it their own way? Why can't people just say, please, I want to do it your way. Thanks for the answer. You gave it to me in Christ. Thanks. And then there's one more thing. As we live to the future, as we begin to identify those things that are eternal, all of them being in Jesus Christ, there's another verse in here that's just a fascinating verse. As you read it, here's what I want you to understand. Verse 16, look at it. 
says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. In other words, we're the folks that the book was written for. We're the folks that the, that the revelation has come to. Look what it says. <clears throat> I am, this is Jesus talking, I am the root of the offspring and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Let me give you one more thing that will happen to you as a believer as you focus on your future in Jesus Christ. In the Middle East, <clears throat> or in the East, as the, as the sun rises, after a dark night, you will notice a change in the sky. The darker and clearer the night, the more stars you can see. But as the sun rises, and remember that heaven is all light, there is no darkness there. It is all light all the time. As the sun rises in the sky, you notice the fading and the disappearance of all of the stars save one, the bright and morning star. I suspect they're talking about Venus here. You can see it in the sky yourself. And what the scripture is saying is that as you focus on Jesus, those things that you thought were so bright, so stable, so evident in life will all fade into invisibility. And you will see the one eternal thing. The question is, are you going to wait for that time before you focus on what lasts? Or are you going to divide all of your energy and all of your attention up to that time on things that will fade away? Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us a, uh, a segment, uh, a glimpse of what life will be like for us. Thank you that we do not have to wait until we die to begin living like that, at least partially. Thank you that you have come from the future in order to form the present. Thank you that you have given us the answer in Jesus Christ. Father, if there's anyone in here tonight who recognized themselves in the illustration of the belligerent child, and they don't want to live like that any longer, let them now say, Sorry, God. I want to ask, please. Please give me that eternal life so that I can see eternal things and live according to eternal ways. Thank you for sacrificing your son Jesus on the cross as payment for my sins. I couldn't pay for them. I didn't have the resources. I couldn't earn my way there. Thank you that you give me that gift. And Father, for the rest of us who have already prayed that prayer, help us to conform to your image of what is eternal, to see it and realign our lives, and help us in all the process, to not focus on ourselves, but to glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name.